You're listening to the Call Me Mr. You, the podcast, your new home for inspiration, family, sports conversations, and a lot of other stuff. We're your all-purpose pod for an all-purpose life and your weekly mirror check before you go change the world, baby. Enjoy the show. On this next episode of They Call Me Mr. You, here's a question inquiring minds want to know. What does a sheep, a silver dollar, and your crazy uncle have in common? Maybe nothing. Maybe everything. There's a big difference between you losing your car keys and you losing yourself. Pride has a weird ability to put you in places where you're not, thinking things that are not true. But I got a mirror and I got time. We're digging through the lost and found of your life. On this episode of They Call Me Mr. You, which starts right now. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the All Purpose Pod for an All Purpose Life. We're your weekly mirror check before you go change the world, baby. You know how we do it. I'm your host, Mr. You. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Welcome back to the All Purpose Pod for an All Purpose Life. We're your weekly mirror check before you go change the world. We're season two. It's almost over. I can't believe it. Thank you for joining us again. Really appreciate your support for our podcast, the People's Podcast. I'm so glad you're the people. Wherever you are today, however you're hearing our podcast for the first time or the tenth time, thank you again for making it Call Me Mr. You, part of your morning, your day, and your week. Let's get it. Come on. Yeah. I love it. All right. This podcast episode is going to be I think one of those for the record books. Season two has been amazing so far. Season one was awesome. But I think season two took the cake so far in the battle of the seasons. But I'll tell you what, this episode is really near and dear to my heart for a lot of reasons. But I really feel like there's something here for all of us, no matter where you are in life, whether you are of the faith or trying to figure some things out, we all deal with the primary topic of this episode. And there's nobody that's exempt, not a single person. I don't care where you are in life, your age, your demographic, geography, doesn't matter. This episode is the one for the books. I really believe this is the one that's going to really help you in ways that perhaps we couldn't do before. So I'm hopeful that you're... Buckling up, if you're a note-taker like I am, you got your pen and paper ready to jot some stuff down and meditate on, let's go ahead and get it. Let's jump right on in. We're going to talk a little bit about your lost and found, like we said at the outset of the episode, in the intro. You know, I know this firsthand, actually, but there's nothing more terrifying to a little child and to their parents when while in the midst of a large crowd, the two become separated. I mean, fear sets in, then panic, even some level of paranoia and even despair, hopelessness. 
Like I'm never going to find my child. I'm never going to find my mom and dad. The child is surrounded by people who don't even know who they are or maybe don't even care. Don't notice their plight whatsoever. Maybe somebody in the crowd sees it as an opportunity of some sort in a negative way. The parents are frantic at this point, right? They're pushing their way through the crowd, calling out their child's name, hoping their voice in response will lead them back together again. Now, if you've never experienced this in your entire life, it's going to be difficult to understand the concept of being lost. Now, although I contend that without fear or doubt that all of us were lost at some point, in some places in time, we were all lost. It occurred to me that many may have become numb to what that felt like, or they didn't even realize they were in a wilderness this entire time. They convinced themselves they were doing good. What does being lost look like? What does being lost feel like? Are you in touch with that feeling? I'm not trying to get you to relive an old memory or a bad memory. I'm trying to get you to understand that if you were in touch with that, how it feels, you know you'll never want to repeat it. Who can you turn to when you're in a state of being lost? How do you know who you can trust or who may take advantage of you instead? How do you know when you're no longer lost, but now you're found? What are the indicators for that little child trapped in a sea of people? The answers are simple. When they see mom and dad again and they hug them really tight and grab their hand and take them home, in their mind, they know they're no, no longer lost, they're found. It's a great dichotomy when you have access to your parents, you're in proximity of your friends and loved ones, you possess all of the creature comforts of home that a person could ever ask for and still don't have any clue that you're still lost. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to kind of hang out today, but it's an excellent image of what it means to be lost and what it means to be found. The idea at its core is centered in unconditional love. That's a concept that we're going to talk about a lot more through the episode and even beyond. And it's also born from understanding that we are all one people, neighbors, connected by one common thread, intricately designed as one unit that has simply been scattered and broken because of the destructive power and impact of sin. Anyone that has taken a real hard look within or is prone to any level of self-evaluation usually discovers that in general, we're often more alike than we're different. We've all been lost. In many ways, we still experience it today, especially when we drift so far away from what matters most. And when we ignore the purpose for why we continue to live, move, breathe, and have our being. It's really not that difficult to understand, but it's sometimes hard to process and deal with because there's so many layers to this discussion. Do you guys remember in your school, the lost and found? I think every school I've ever been to had a lost and found, even into college. That was where you would find necklaces, rings, keys, and other personal items, you know. You'd be hard-pressed to find an empty lost and found at any time during the school year. I don't think it was ever empty. After everybody graduated, it still wasn't empty. It was still full. It's always full. After every year, after every semester, new students, new teachers, new faculty. But the lost and found was never deficient. Why is that, do you think? Could one reason be that no one ever thinks to look for their lost item in that place? Is it about location? Is there knowledge that there is lost and found they weren't aware of? 
Is it possible the item didn't have that much value to, to start with for the owner to seek after it? Maybe the effort wasn't worth an extensive search and simply replaced later on with a shinier and newer model. Could it be that? I don't know why these items weren't retrieved. Some of them were pretty precious in my mind. I saw in my day antique lockets, signet rings, and gold and silver jewelry that looked pretty good. Pictures and many flashlights and lanyards and a whole host of other items. Were they important? Did they matter? Did they have some kind of significant value? It's not for me to say. I guess it all depends on the person who lost them. But the person that finds them may find it to be very valuable. Luke 15 gives you three parables that highlight the realities of being lost and a bit of a deep dive into a word that the human race still struggles with today. Value. There are many among us that spend their whole lives fighting to prove they have value. They're trying to prove it to the mother who gave them up at birth or the father that abandoned them and never returned. Went to the store for a pack of cigarettes and never came back. They're trying to prove it to the friends that deem them not good enough or not cool enough in school. They're trying to prove it to the teachers that proclaimed in the front of the class and in front of all of their peers and their classmates they'd never amount to anything in life. They're trying to prove it to the law enforcement officials who declared them once a criminal, always a criminal. They'll never do any better. In case you didn't know, in case you're not aware, the fight to establish value is on. And it's been on for a long time. Cain bashed his brother's Abel's head in because he couldn't see his own value. Joseph's ten, ten brothers abandoned him and then sold him into slavery because they couldn't discern their own value and worth. Moses was adamant about not being in a position of a vocal leader because in his mind, he wasn't valuable. Page after page, account after account, experience after experience. There's literally, there's literally no chance you ever find a sheep and lost and found. But in the times of this account, sheep were representative of a family's wealth and their commerce. Losing one sheep could represent the loss of a lot of money. In the economy of man, one sheep mattered. In the economy of God and his kingdom, one sheep is important enough to receive all of his focus, all of his attention, all of his love. So if you're taking notes, God cares about every sheep in the herd. Understand that God cares about every sheep in the herd. I know that sheep has a derogatory definition in today's time, especially if you're thinking about it from a political sense. It's pretty derogatory and sheep do have a sheep does have a reputation that's not that great, meaning sheep the animal. But God cares about every sheep in the herd. Sheep have a well-deserved stigma when it comes to their demeanor. But their very nature and character screams, I'm an animal in need. Help me. I don't know how aware they are, but those of us that have done any research know that they're prone to put themselves in perilous circumstances and they're in desperate need for a shepherd pretty much at all times. Just like us, if left to our own devices, we would harm ourselves. In the same way the sheep would. They made some outstanding fabric, but they don't have a stellar reputation in that era or in this one. Now, in Luke 15, one of the parables that Jesus was teaching the people 
started like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Well, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That's Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 7. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that this sheep was somebody's pet. And that's why they were so happy to find them or go after them when they had 99 others just like them. I believe, again, this is a commerce economy related example. Because a family can suffer without having sheep as commerce. We know that in scripture to be so. But in this case, we're understanding that God cares about the little things, so to speak. The things that some of us may think is insignificant. Oh, one got away. I got 99. If you got $100 in your pocket and a $1 bill blows away or disappears. You probably won't go looking for it, would you? That's the economy of man. That's the mindset of man. You probably won't go searching for it because you got 99 other dollars in your pocket. So what's one more dollar, right? The economy of man is much different than the economy of God. God cares about that one dollar. Or in this case, God cares about that one sheep. And he rejoices over it. And at the end, you saw that the analogy speaks to those who don't know who God is, those who are living a life where they're suffering and they're going through hell. He rejoices in them finding salvation and finding healing in him. So that one person that the Pharisees may be talking about or mocking or looking down upon matters to God more than anything. Even if that person doesn't matter to them. Something else, if you're taking notes down, religious people equate status with value. Religious people equate status with value. Now the leaders... The religious leaders of Jesus' time had an issue with him sitting down and eating with people who had bad reputations. Tell me this. Have you ever got a cold shoulder or got snubbed when you spent a little too much time with somebody who wasn't as fortunate as you? I'm sure high school comes to mind. That's usually where that happens the most. But it still happens in our adult lives as well. Did you become persona non grata when you associated with somebody who lacked privilege or didn't have wealth or didn't have nice things like you? didn't have the nicest clothes. Maybe they couldn't afford the kind of perfume you bought or the cologne you bought. See, what the religious leaders of their time and even in the time that we're in today were saying is that God is rejecting those that sin. That's bad theology. He doesn't care for those like he cares for the righteous me. I'm he who he prefers so I should command his attention and his love and his support. He favors me. He likes me better than he likes them. That's really bad theology. I'm going to show you a couple of passages to kind of disprove that idea, that mindset. But seriously, people think like this. That because they're not so-called committing sin, that God likes them better. He favors them better. He cares more about them than he cares about you. 
Now, some folks are shaking their head at this ridiculous notion, and you should, because it is ridiculous and anti-biblical. But how is it that we find ourselves acting in the same way sometimes? See, that's the part we got to deal with. Where do we locate the ability to place ourselves above other people? Where'd that come from? From where do we derive the wisdom to determine what's in a man's heart and be oblivious to what's inside our own heart? How do we see the speck in somebody else's eye, but don't see the plank in our own eye? Here are two passages to kind of help us incur- help encourage us about the kind of stinking thinking that I was just talking about. Mark 2 and 17, it says, when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I'm going to read it again. Mark 2 and 17. When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Second Peter 3 and 9 supports this by saying, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, Lord, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's kind of sad the religious leaders missed that part. That God himself is saying he doesn't want any to perish. He wants them all to come to repentance. How does that happen? Not by talking down to them or seeing them as dirt or filth, but seeing the way God sees them as sick people who need his help. You know, upon reflecting on those days, searching through the lost and found, I recall two things. One, after a certain amount of time, students were often encouraged to look through the lost or found when no one would claim items. I don't know if all the schools did that, but one school in particular did that with us. If nobody claimed anything, it was almost a free-for-all. Come and get what you want so we can get the box empty. It was an opportunity sometimes for a great find for somebody that somebody else discarded. Probably how the show Storage Wars got started, probably, something like that. The second thing is that I don't think I've ever found money in the lost and found. I saw a whole bunch of things there, but never any money. And it's probably because money is considered instant value. So it never stays lost for long. It means more to most because with it, you can almost simultaneously get what you want. It's quick currency. A quick fix. Just the way this generation likes it. Fast, easy and fast. The only exceptions are people who know what it's like to be without so much that they cherish what they have. It's a rare breed, but they're out there. I know millionaires, people who I actually have conversed with and talked to or connected with. Anything about a $450 purchase, the same way a man with $100 to his name thinks about a $10 purchase. Did that go over your head? I hope it got into your heart. I said, I know millionaires that think about a $450 purchase in the same way a man with $100 to his name thinks about buying something for $10. I hope it didn't go over your head, but I hope it got into your heart. This next parable is definitely about currency, just not the kind that you were thinking about. Luke 15, 8 and 10 reads, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, 
there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Clearly, we're seeing a theme here on rejoicing as well as taking pleasure in seeing someone someone change their life. And I believe that this just emphasized the chapter's overall point that God cares about the people that we often don't. He remembers the people that we forget. He sees as valuable the people that we discard, which puts us right in the place where we are potentially at odds with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, at odds with the creator of us. That's a bad place to be. So reading this, hopefully, and hearing this, and researching it for yourself, will hopefully help you to understand that we're talking about a mindset that God has that he's given to us because he wants us to adopt it. He wants us to walk in it. He wants us to live it out. The coin in this case represents purchasing power and the ability to trade and barter, of course. But in the economy of man, one coin should make a difference. Especially if you don't have many of them. In this scenario, the woman had 10 coins made of silver. In that time, silver had some value. So losing one could be catastrophic to the household finances and to the ability to buy food and supplies going forward, especially in times of famine or, or, or any kind of hard time that they may experience. So in that, in that case, one coin does definitely make a difference. Conversely, if you're the kind of person that has so many coins, you can't even count them. Losing one is the loss you may not even notice. But in the economy of God and his kingdom, every coin has a value. Every coin represents his wealth. So it matters to him. Every coin represents his love. So it matters to him. I wish I could say I'd never seen a person in the lost and found. But where I come from, the streets were full of them. As were other facilities that house children that their parents may have abandoned them or the world may have forgotten about them. So I saw a whole lot of lost and found with people in it. These days, we've upgraded or downgraded to cages and cells, depending on how you view current events. So now you heard a couple of accounts using analogies and symbolism. At the end of the day, it's all about the currency that matters the most to God. This is why idolatry, if you research this, is one of the most grievous sins the Lord talks about. And it does the most damage generationally. Because God loves his people and there really is no good reason for his people not to love him. <clears throat> I provide enough evidence, I think, to help you see value in God's most cherished passion, which is you, his people, his creation. You may not be in the frame of mind that the religious leaders who were critical of Jesus's social circle were during that time. I think we can all stand to think of people a little bit differently. Every time I turn on the news or read my local paper or my national paper or hear conversations with friends and family or even view things on social media, heaven forbid, right? I realize that we can stand and think of others differently. We can stand and think of people differently. Not just names and faces, but people. Human like us. Hurting like us. Crying out like us. In search of value like us. 
How can you love someone else without conditions when all the love you ever witnessed in your life has come with one? How do you treat others better than you want to be treated when you have spent decades cutting on yourself and tearing yourself down, having zero self-esteem? Value can't be found at your local convenience store or on a recommendation of some kind of fashionista or social media influencer. The kind of value we need can only be found in the words of your creator and in his loving arms. Everybody else is just sharing their experience or still trying to figure it out themselves. We can't find it anywhere else but in the love of our father. And I think this last parable highlights that really well. I want to share that before we close out the episode for today. We're finishing the rest of Luke chapter 15. And it said, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. In other words, give me my inheritance. So he divided his property between them. What I'm thinking happened in between this exchange, because the younger one is kind of, he sounds like he's a habitual line stepper. He's kind of crossing a line here. There's a heritage and a, a system with how you deal with inheritances. And the younger one was asking for his now. Basically, he was demanding his share. And it sounds as though he did it with some kind of disrespect. Like he had bass in his voice or something. Like he was trying to say it with his chest. And there was a, there's a point there where I feel as though his father just uh, decided to give, give him his request against his best interest. But that's where I think things were going so far. Let's continue. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Imagine that. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. He sold himself. For those in the back. Who sent him to feel, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. That was the assignment that he sold himself for. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So he was hired, but he wasn't fed or taken care of. You know, we live in a society where we learn that we have to fight for everything and that no one will ever give us anything. Part of that is a lie and part of that is the truth. The truth bomb in there is that fighting for what we believe has value. There are times that we can be fortunate enough to be given something, wisdom, advice, help, knowledge, an opportunity, maybe even some kind of support. This son had a nursing environment that he was growing up in, but what he did was cut the instruction short Dropped out of school when he hadn't comprehended all the coursework. Let's keep reading. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? He said he came to his senses. And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. One thing I want to touch here. In another translation of this passage, it says that he actually ate the pods that the pig ate. He ate what pigs ate. If you know anything about that, you can throw a tin can in there and the pigs will eat it. For all you pork lovers out there, they'll eat whatever you put into the uh, into the ditch. 
or into the slop, so to speak. That's what this young man ate because he had no other food. He had no other option. When you have to eat something that I guess is beneath you or is so much lesser than what you had, it almost brings you back to your senses. It reminds you of where you actually are, are and how far you've fallen. You know, <laughs> it's amazing to me how often we sin against heaven. I mean, he was saying that that was going to be his rehearsed line to tell his father. But how did he sin against heaven? He disrespected and showed dishonor to the father who loved him. We do that to God the Father all the time, and it's worth thinking about. It's worth pondering. Let's move forward. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. One thing to recall here, or to remember here, excuse me. The father's view of you is always different than yours. I know that might go over your head a little bit. I don't mean to. I'm telling you just from experience. The father's view of you is always different than yours. We can only see from a limited vantage point. From the comfort of his arms and the height of his love, the world we live in can look so much different. We see our enemies like he sees them, smaller and toothless, all bark and no real bite. We see our mountains like he does, molehill that he can melt like wax or cast down with ease. We see our impossible struggles like he does, possible. Parting Red Seas, possible. Axe heads floating on the water, possible. Water turned into wine, possible. Two fish and five loaves of bread, enough for 5,000 people, possible. Whatever you think is impossible is possible in him. But in him, those wretched men that sat and ate with Jesus didn't have any honor, no respect in the community, a horrible reputation, and probably had some heart issues too. But with Jesus, their redemption was what? possible let's continue but the father said to his servants quick bring the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet bring the fatted calf and kill it let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found so they began to celebrate i want to just put something out here right here the son wasn't sending his father emails or posting something on instagram when his, when his son left the house, his father didn't know where he was and what had happened to him and had no way of contacting him. They were totally cut off. It's not much different when we fall into sin and we fall away from God's love. We fall away from his compassion. We fall away from his touch. We feel like the father did. My son is dead. I feel like I'm going, I'm, I'm out here. God's never going to want me back. But it's actually the reverse. God knows where you are. Even where you are right now, he knows where you are and he wants you back desperately. And the parable goes on to read. Meanwhile, the other son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed a fattened calf because he has had him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you. Okay, catch that. And never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat. Catch that part. So I can celebrate with my friends. Catch that part. 
And when this son of yours, catch that too, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, ooh, father came with some shade. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, that brother that did all the right things still had a heart issue by his own words. I've seen that played out so many times, especially in churches. Let somebody that's been there for 25 years, ain't doing nothing, but just sitting there taking up space. And somebody comes in six months later and they're coming in and taking the world by storm. They're serving God. They're humble about it. Usually, the person that's been there 25 years takes offense to that. This young buck trying to come here and take my spot. That's kind of how this attitude was here. He felt like the older brother felt he earned what the thing that the younger brother was given. You heard that? The older brother felt like he earned what the younger brother was given. He said, I've been slaving for you. And you never gave me a party. This son of yours, not his brother now, this son of yours, disconnected himself from his own brother, his own blood. I never got to celebrate with my friends. You never gave me blank, blank, blank. And we never got to see fully what the older brother would decide and how he would respond to his father's request. Now, was his love for his brother strong enough to let go of his anger and embrace the one that was actually lost? Is your love for the lost one enough to allow you to invite him or her back into your life so they can eat again, be safe again, live whole again? At the end of the day, this is all about value. At the end of the day, this is all about value. This entire episode was about value and how we see ourselves and how we need to see ourselves through the eyes of God's character and through the eyes of God's word. How do you see yourself? How does God and his word describe you? How do you view others that look like you? How do you view others that don't look like you? How do you view others that come from where you come from? How do you view others that think where you come from is foreign to them? I don't know who is in your life and what influence you've been giving them. But I hope and pray that you are daily reminded that you're more than a sheep. You're more than a coin and you're more than a brother and sister. You're a son and a daughter and you're worth fighting for. And most definitely you're worth the life of an innocent savior. We can't understand it, but God says you're worth it. Hope you enjoyed the episode today. Hope it ministered to you. Hope you took notes and you're thinking about it. Looking through some of these passages with scripture. Seeing how it applies to you. Thank you so much again for joining us on the Call Me Mr. You. Wherever you are today, however you're hearing our podcast, first time, fifth time, tenth time, thank you again for making the Call Me Mr. You part of your morning, your day, and your week. We appreciate you guys. Leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you don't mind. Enjoy the episode. Enjoy the rest of season two. We will talk to you soon. And oh yeah, enjoy the music.
Thanks again for listening to the Call Me Mr. You, the podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. Please like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel for all of our full-length live episodes. And of course, if you're an audio listener, wherever you enjoy your podcast listening, you can find the Call Me Mr. You, the podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. Go change the world. Coach out.